Welcome to Course Stories, produced by the Instructional Design and New Media Team of EdPlus at Arizona State University. In this podcast, we tell an array of course design stories alongside other ASU Online designers and faculty. On today's course story, you are on a plane flying into the eye of a hurricane. This is what hurricane hunters do. They're a part of the Air Force, so it is a real-life career. I know people who have done it. It's not something most students would get to do as a part of a normal course, nor would they probably want to, <laughs> but this gives them the opportunity to do it safely. They would never get to do something like that with a traditional resource or reading about it in a book or even watching a video about it. They actually have the opportunity to release the drops on, watch the data come in on the instrument and then read the instrument and then report it the way that a hurricane hunter would do in the field. You just would not be able to do that with traditional resources. Hi, I'm Mary Loader, an instructional designer from ASU Online. I'm Elizabeth Blythe, a senior instructional designer at Arizona State University. I'm Ricardo Leone. I'm a media specialist at the same place. Yeah, we work together. Let's get on with the show. Okay. Okay. Who's going to say it first? I was going to go first. Hi, Mary and Liz. Hi, me, Ricardo. Hi, Ricardo. Hi, Liz. Hi, Ricardo. Hi, Mary. Nice to see you guys. So good to see you guys. It's been a long time. So long. (laughs) It's nice to see you guys in person as opposed to virtual reality, which is the subject, what is kind of this part of the subject of today's uh, oh, episode. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm into it. I actually I actually can't be here anymore because I have to leave to go take this class right now. <laughs> it's an amazing course, and it was already good before the integration of the project that they're going to talk about in this episode because Rachel Kay was actually one of our ASU Online Faculty Showcase members last year for her integration of intentional media, the use of PlayPosit. Like she's already a very thoughtful instructor, which you'll see through the conversation. There's something about these GPH courses where all the faculty are unbelievably bright and so fun to talk to, to work with, to be around. But each of their courses does a really good job with um, considering intentionality mm-hmm. and real world information and skills that they can use, not just to like get through this class or get through their program, but like stuff that you need to know to do today. To be a human. Yeah, to be a human yeah. on the planet and Relevant surviving learning. a hurricane, as we're going to talk about. I'm very invested in uh, the storyline <laughs> that we talk about today. For season five of Course Stories, this is the first episode of this brand new season, a season full of all kinds of really great things. Now, what are we going to listen to today? So today we are talking to the faculty and designers behind the GPH 212 course, which is Introduction to Meteorology. Christine Moore, veteran instructional designer, friend of the pod, uh, she talks to and interviews Robert Lee Camois, who is an associate professor at Arizona State University, and for this episode, most notably, directs the media studio. And it stands for Mobile Experiential Technology Through Embedded Optimization Research. Mm. (laughs) But basically, it's arts, media, and engineering coming together Mm -hmm. to create immersive experiences. We also sit down with Rachel Kay, who is a meteorologist and instructor at Arizona State University. And uh, most importantly, beyond being a PhD student, which is really cool, she is a two-time Emmy Award winner for her work in meteorology broadcasting. Christine just posted on it, and they were like all excited and the picture was so cute. But she, they did put in there, led by Emmy Award-winning meteorologist Rachel Kay, under the advisement <laughs> of Robert Lee Kamwa, and then mentioned you next, Ricardo Leone, as a supporting member of their success. I support their success. I've been part of the scripting process a little bit, and it's just really cool to see it grow and, and shape up into being something really cool. So if you have money to give to help them uh, work on this project, go ahead, give it give it, reach out to us and we'll reconnect you with Rachel. I think Rachel also gives some uh, contact information at the end of the episode as well. But yeah, it's a really exciting project and we're, we're very happy to feature it here on Core Stories. It's a star-studded episode. It's mm-hmm. going to be a movie. Like someone's, <laughs> who do you think is going to play you in the real life movie? Uh, I uh, will offer only. I only play myself. Oh, that's great. Hi, everyone. My name is Christine Moore, and I'm an instructional designer with EdPlus at ASU Online. Today, we're discussing GPH 212, Introduction to Meteorology. And joining us today is the instructor and additional project manager for a component of the course. Why don't you all go ahead and introduce yourselves? 
Sure. I'm Rachel Kay. I am the instructor for GPH 212. It's Intro to Meteorology and the accompanying lab. And for our project that we'll be discussing today, I'm the subject matter expert and also a PhD student under... Dr. Robert Lee Kamwatz. So great to be here. Um, I'm a professor, associate professor in the School of Arts, Media, and Engineering and the School of Electrical, Computer, and Energy Engineering. And I direct this lab, which we call Meteor Studio, where we do research on augmented reality and virtual reality. And we're also a big production studio. So we have a bunch of students designing new forms of XR material. All right. Well, let's give our listeners a little bit of background on the course. Rachel, why don't you tell us how this course came about, maybe some of the learning objectives and just some high-level information? So I'll start by saying I am specifically the instructor for the online course. There is an on-campus version as well that's taught by another professor. So I joined unofficially a couple years ago and started developing the online course from scratch, which was a big adventure, not something I'd ever done before. But uh, with a background in meteorology and almost a decade in broadcast meteorology, it was a lot of fun for me to develop those lectures and put together a really interactive course. I wanted it to feel fun because weather should be fun. And so I developed a seven-module online class and then the accompanying lab. We cover everything from how clouds form, how precipitation forms, storm systems, the forecasting process, and careers in meteorology too. And I have to jump in and say that it is a fun course and it is an exciting course. And one of the joys of being an instructional designer is working with new instructors because Rachel did come to us as a subject matter expert and hadn't developed or taught in higher ed before. And she 100% came in with fresh ideas, ready and willing to design kind of whatever we needed. She did all of the technological behind the scenes work herself. She learned HTML. She learned all of the LTIs that she used in her course and designed those assets herself. She has an incredibly fresh and interesting take on meteorology, being both a subject matter expert and also a broadcaster. So students get a really robust and interesting and exciting look at something we see every day, which is weather. It always feels a little weird to like brag, but um One thing that I do think was a strength coming into building the class was my background in broadcasting. I took kind of unofficial course surveys at the end of the first few runs of the class. And a lot of students through that or even just through emails were telling me like, these are some of the best lectures that I've seen in any of my online classes and that they were more engaging. I know you guys have this amazing media studio here to record. I did start close enough to the pandemic where I was still recording lectures from home. By the end, I probably could have been coming in. But just for consistency, I kind of kept up my setup and I made sure that I had like a good microphone and good lighting. So while we were designing the class, we always had this idea of having really high quality visual elements, but we did run into some issues. Tell us a little bit about the course and the technological components and and the learning objectives that we were trying to meet. I think one of the things that's really unique about meteorology is that weather affects everybody. And even if you're not a scientist or you don't think that this is something you're going to want to pursue, it's going to teach you more about something that impacts your everyday life. And I really wanted to drive that home for students by showing them connections to what we're learning from what we're learning in class to the real world. Um, So like one of the tools that we used was what we deemed our weather wows. So each module of the course starts off with a weather wow moment. And these are short, honestly, mostly viral videos. A lot of them are like they're meant to be quick and fun. And students watch them at the start of the module. And it's kind of a hint as to the topics we're going to be learning about in more detail. So an example, I don't know if you guys here have ever seen, but it's really (laughs) because we're in Arizona. In cold climates, when it's winter, it's a fun like social media trend to take a cup of boiling water water outside and throw it and watch it turn to ice instantly. And so I had a video of that in the module on precipitation and cloud formation condensation. So they watched this fun video. Then we learned about the process of how that actually happens scientifically. And then in the study guide for that module, before we get to the assessments and the quiz, we return to that video in a tool called PlayPosit, which pauses the video throughout and lets students answer questions. So it's kind of tying everything back together. So we really tried to create interactive and interesting course elements along those lines. Mm-hmm. And so, very multimedia. Yes. Very multimedia. There's there's video, play posits, YouTube, lecture, 
podcasts. Are there any podcasts? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Module Module 7 on careers in meteorology. The American Meteorological Society has a podcast. And the students also reach out to meteorologists in the field as one of the assignments, don't they? I'm pausing because I think... Yes, they do. Yes. No, I wanted to remember if it was in the lecture or the lab. They do. It's in the lab. Oh, okay. But yeah. So anyway, we have all of these really interactive elements. But when it comes to something like storm safety which I think is so underrated in intro to meteorology classes. I'll say this. It wasn't even a part of the textbook. And I was like, well, we're going to put it in the module on severe weather anyway, because what's the point of just learning about severe weather if you're not going to follow that as a career path? Yeah, there's some interest and value to that. But the real value is in knowing how to respond to the severe weather. Right. Talk about something students would actually use in their life. Yes. Not just what types of clouds are out there or how the weather associations work, but how to actually save yourself yeah. when the waters are rising. And I would have felt like it was such a disservice to my students if they left my class without knowing how to stay safe if they found themselves in a tornado warning. Mm-hmm. So I incorporated lectures on that. And then when we started looking for more interactive tools to really engage students and drive those messages home, that's where we started to hit some more challenges. Um, Christine, you recommended looking into some interactive documentaries. We have a really great one that has a big emotional pull. It's one of my discussions for that module where students watch basically an individual, really talented storyteller's experience living through the Tuscaloosa, Alabama tornado um, and how his community reacted to that. It's difficult to watch. It is really emotional. It is. It pulls at your heartstrings and you can't get through it without a little tear. Yeah. But it it does spark some really interesting conversation with the students. But we wanted to take that further, right? We wanted, now they have the emotional pull, but how can they then start to practice that themselves? Exactly. And practicing it is where Robert comes in. And we tried to design some kind of learning experience where students would have the ability to feel what it's like to be in a weather emergency. And then just as you said, practice how to keep themselves safe. So Robert, why don't you tell us how you enter the story? Yeah, popping into this from a different perspective, we have this augmented reality, virtual reality studio. We're always hungry for really meaningful projects to attach ourselves to. With immersive narratives, you can tell compelling stories. So we're looking always for the right stories to tell with big learning objectives that drive what kinds of stories, what kinds of experiences, what kinds of interactive things where we want to place the the students, the learners inside of these situations in a really um, visceral way. And that's something that, you know, these gamified experiences have the ability to do. And so we were hungry for those kind of opportunities. And when we were able to connect on this around GPH 212 Introduction to Meteorology course, I think we landed on some really, really exciting opportunities here. Weather phenomena, it's just really great to immerse people inside of the different lenses, the different aspects of careers in meteorology, which is actually what we landed on with our experience. So it's been really, really great, really, really, really meaningful for us to, to, to work on this project. I love that you mentioned the career aspect also, because that is something that we were able to work into the video game. And should we call it a video game? Should we call it an immersive experience? What term... Why don't you tell us a little bit about the interface of the game and and how we refer to it? Yeah, the the experience that the students have developed, um, it has very game-like notions to it. It could be called a video game. It plays on desktop or it plays in virtual reality. It'll also play on mobile phones as well. So this experience that students engage with, it, it leads them through what it's like to be a news anchor that's reporting on data that's coming into their news desk on a hurricane that's impending on the coast of Florida. It takes them through being a weather science officer on a plane where they're dropping instruments into the hurricane and recording that data and figuring out what are the different parts of the hurricane and how do they understand the structure of this storm that's coming in. And it takes them through the career of a a rescue officer as well, somebody who's out there, a first responder who's out there trying to give guidance to people who are in the aftermath of the storm as well and providing rescue operations. So by putting students inside of the shoes of these sorts of of careers, they're giving the students a sense that they themselves, the students could have these sorts of lives in front of them. 
not necessarily inside of those careers, but in similarly impactful roles in the future. So that's always a really crisp, meaningful story for us to tell inside of these immersive stories. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. I want to back up too and talk just a little bit more about the process of how we landed on these career paths and, and these experiences for the students, because we had a big debate at the beginning. We were talking more about a tornado experience. The reason we ultimately switched to a hurricane experience is because there's so much real life rich data around hurricanes. And one thing that I think is really cool about what we've built is that so much of it uses that real life data. So we have real life satellite imagery, real life radar from a hurricane hunter plane that flew through the eye of a real life storm. We have what's called a sounding that students in my course learn about and they're reading that data. Um, And then storm surge reports from after the storm hit, you know, really throughout the entire process from forecasting to collecting data to the aftermath. So, Robert, we wanted to kind of pick your brain because you're the SME when it comes to VR, in my mind, and AR. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, well, it's true. And at ASU, I think a lot of people see you that way. What is the difference between VR and AR? And are there any reasons that this is not an AR experience as well? So, virtual reality and augmented reality find themselves on what we call a spectrum. And in virtual reality, you're replacing everything that somebody sees, everything that somebody hears with a completely virtual environment. And as they turn their head, they're moving their head in that virtual environment. When they're walking, they're walking inside of that virtual environment as well. In augmented reality or mixed reality, you're actually superimposing virtual elements onto their physical world. So they're still seeing the desk that's in front of them. They're still seeing the floor, the real floor. They're still seeing the people in the room. But you also see different augmented objects from the virtual world in the space. And as you walk around, you can see it from different perspectives. You can touch it and interact with it as well. Um, But it's purely virtual that's blended and melded with the, the, the physical environment. Now, you asked about why we went with the virtual reality route for this case. When you want to immerse somebody fully in a narrative, we think it makes sense to just completely immerse them inside of it. So that does mean replacing their entire visual field, their auditory field, their tactile field with something that's a completely virtual experience, so we can compose the narrative. But we next want to look at what could some augmented reality things be to teach students about things like cloud formation, things that are more spatial in nature where they will want to walk around it and see it from different perspectives, but see it inside of their space so they get a sense of scale, get a sense of of place um, with these different objects. So Rachel is actually looking at that, thinking about that for the next generation of things as well. Yeah. So Rachel actually came out, we have a VR club at Ed Plus, and she came out and showed us some of the, I think it was Act 3, but maybe some of Act 1 as well. Oh, it was Act 2. I'm getting hand signals from Rachel. And it did look like there were like interactive components inside the VR. So kind of talk about that as like the, the meshing of the two. Yeah, absolutely. Inside of virtual reality, you can actually have some of these augmented elements as well, where it does really feel like they're in the space, they're using their hands or their controllers to really interact with these elements as well. They're able to feel like they're able to jump through different augmented views as well. I think we have a few examples of that inside of some of our different acts as well. Um, so it's a lot of fun to blend the physical and virtual together in different ways. So cool. Thanks for sharing your expertise. Absolutely. My pleasure. One thing I do want to say about this immersive experience is that, you know, we're really diving into something that doesn't exist yet. I, I, I'm always nervous about saying pioneering, but we don't know of another instructor-led immersive experience that uses the resources, the cross-functional resources available at the university. Of course, we have Dreamscape, the Dreamscape Learn Project in the bio courses. Um, That is a next level project that pulls from major, major resources and is a very high profile project at the university. What we're working on and what we're trying to establish is a set of best practices and processes that instructors across the university could tap into to potentially develop these type of experiences for their own courses. And I mean, that's just something that is really unique and we're so thankful to Rachel and to Robert and his team to help, you know, support this project. And everyone dove, you know, head, 
what's the word? Head in, head first. Everyone dove, <laughs> everyone dove head first into the opportunity, and and we laugh and say it was the perfect storm of opportunity to really pull from and highlight all of the resources that are available at ASU. Yeah, it really was a perfect storm. I mean, we we have these students who really want to learn about how to develop as creative producers in their own right. They're designers, game designers, game developers. They're 3D artists. They're programmers. They're storytellers. They want to see these experiences come together, and they want to see themselves inside of those careers developing these experiences, which is exactly why we're so hungry for the right stories to tell to put these students in those situations where they are developing for a real client with real objectives and there's real impactful, meaningful outcome as well, including measurable outcome as well of sampling from the students and saying, hey, what are you learning through this experience? And that's a really important detail that the folks working on developing this project outside of the stakeholders and advisors are students. It's a team of student workers who are getting their undergrad and master's degrees in various types of media, arts, computer sciences. And I have to say, I was incredibly impressed with the team that was put together to work with such young, creative, hungry students that were willing to work on something that we we weren't really sure what we were working on at the beginning. You know, we had this big team building party at the at the Science Center just to brainstorm. And wow, like what an impressive group of young people who are going to do great things. Austin Porter was our project manager, just graduated with his master's degree. So we had a mix of master's and undergraduate students. But I mean, he took the lead on making this happen because it had been kind of in the works as a conversation for a while. And he was like, I, w- I want to take the lead on this. And he was amazing, just super knowledgeable, dedicated to the work, receptive to all kinds of feedback and just wanted to make it the best it could be. Alex Vong has been involved in the project as an undergraduate who you could have told me he was a PhD student and mm-hmm. I would have believed it. Absolutely. I mean, and his degree is in media arts and sciences, which is hosted by the School of Arts, Media and Engineering, where we teach students these integral skills of how to work with others, artists working with technologists, working with computer scientists to, to pull these experiences together in really meaningful ways with a techno-fluency as a, as a critical component. Techno-fluency? What even is that? What's that, Liz? Well, good thing I looked it up. Because <laughs> also, I wouldn't know otherwise. This is another one of ASU's really innovative things. It's a new term that we have coined, keyword technofluency. So they say that it's three things. Fluency with technology, application development, and implications. Which it sounds like mm. that's the coming together of multiple disciplines to create a fluid experience. That Implications. Yeah. I have to have Robert come back and tell us more about it. What was the thing? Didn't Andrew talk about that too? Oh. This idea that we're we're oh, what is what is it? Michael Crow the has digital the thing. fluency was what I think Andrew talked but there's about. There's some, but it's more like a, like a moral obligation to make sure that we're fluent. No, in but like there's spaces? a specific term that Crow's oh. got that it's like. But he works for us, so we should just call him up. He's on yeah, the give team. A, well, he Michael. is on the team. He's on the production team. <laughs> yeah, we should just slack him real quick. Be like, no, Michael, what it's... is that word you like to use? We're on a first name basis now. I totally get it. Me and Mike here too. There's one that's getting thrown around right now that it's like, but it, but it's very specific about the implications of using these technologies. Principled innovation. Principled innovation. There you go. It's always what's coming up. Principled, Principled innovation. innovation. You can't just make us. it to make it. You shouldn't just implement it to implement it. It needs to be intentional. It needs to be thoughtful towards its societal impact, all the things. Yeah, and that's exactly what this course does. Uh, There was a couple things that we talked about here where they talk about their learning objectives being at the literal top of their page for everything that they were doing, which one makes me think about you know me, I'm going to talk about alignment. It's my favorite, my favorite thing. <laughs> so they talked about how, they, how that aligned the project, the course, how it brought people aligned on the project, like creating the project and getting people kind of on the same page is that they kind of had this North Star. But beyond that, with that intentionality too, that they are not just putting this really cool experience in for the sake of having a really cool experience, it is actually filling a very targeted and specific gap and need in the course. So they've mentioned, well, it'd be cool to have this VR experience and everything. It might not be right for every class. So you have to think about 
the uh, implications of what that's going to do, that principled innovation of uh, being intentional with how we're using the technology and our time and resources. Absolutely. Because even though VR is cool, it actually doesn't meet everyone's learning needs, right? So we have people who really just can't be in VR environments for a number of reasons. Oh, sure. Accessibility issues. Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, I mean, access to a headset. There's so many things, right, that could impact a person's ability to interact in that space in the same way as the person right next to them, but they're being very intentional about it, right? So you can still do it on the web browser. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. So that takes away the need to worry about if you have access to the technology or if you get vertigo when you go into a headset. Mm -hmm. So they're being very intentional. So Alex is is an embodiment of that program, certainly. He is. From a professional development standpoint, His work in this type of project is a wonderful example of how a student can grow and build their skills, not just from a technological or professional standpoint, but his team building efforts, the way that he presented in the meetings. I mean, just to see someone who is just starting out their career handle himself in such a professional way was what we want from these types of projects and these types of opportunities for students. He's a wonderful example of the growth that can happen when they're given that opportunity. And then I want to shout out to to Jesse Torres and Krupa Kapadia, who have been two of our artistic directors. And they, you know, can I say work their butts off? They work their butts off and are really talented artists. And Krupa's right now helping us to set a standard on adding a lot of depth to the visuals and really making this look as polished as it can be. These experiences, it's pretty incredible because you need that cross-functional team. And that's some of the biggest challenges is you need artists to be able to work with developers. You need to have a script where people respect the script and are able to understand and find alignment in how all this stuff comes together and project managers to pull it all together. So it's a, a real credit to the students, but also kind of their structure and their their way of, of working to pull these things together efficiently. Can I talk a little bit more about the script process? Um, because that was everyone at this table has been involved in the script writing process uh, to at least some degree. And that in its own was a really big lift and something that I'm hoping through our experience and my research and, and writing moving forward, we can help provide a framework for future experiences to go through this a little more smoothly. Writing an educational script for a virtual reality narrative experience has so many layers. And so I started as the content expert and the instructor for the course. I'm now project manager since Austin has graduated. Christine, instructional designer, lead for the project and the script. Ricardo, who you guys may not hear when you're listening, but he's standing here with us. He's helped with some of the script writing as well. And in all of the script writing meetings, we've also needed someone with a technical background involved so that we can make sure... We're providing the proper cues for the interactions that we want to go along with the dialogue and that what we're asking for is possible to create. And sometimes that involves a conversation with the artists. And then you have to have a storyline that's interesting, that provides drama and conflict and resolution. So, you know, that was a learning process for me because I haven't done creative writing in years. And this is creative writing, but with a very, very particular goal and twist. And then, you know, Christine, you were always tying us back to the learning objectives, which was a good reminder on my shoulder of like, okay, how does this connect to what we want the students to get out of the course and out of the experience? And we very much derived our process and were inspired by the process of Dreamscape Immersive and Dreamscape Learn, actually. And Walter Parks, this, you know, legendary Hollywood producer and his process of script writing. So we were really taking cues from them. A lot of our structure and how we even structure our scripts look very similar to the way Dreamscape Immersive runs theirs as well. So big inspiration from how it's done by professionals as well. Another thing for the students to learn from. We tried to take a lot of lessons learned from other attempts at immersive elements for courses and from Dreamscape. What were some of the challenges that we ran into and tried to overcome along the way because we had to be very forgiving to ourselves. We had to be very gentle with ourselves because it is a process and it is a learning experience. And we ran into a lot of challenges. I think something that's just unavoidable with these sorts of immersive experiences when you're making a game, when you're making a VR experience, you can script it, you can storyboard it, you can imagine what it's going to be like, but you won't really know until it comes together. And so there ends up being a lot on the cutting room floor where we thought an idea was really great when we scripted it. It read a lot better, but once it 
manifested together, it fell a little bit flat. You know, it didn't feel as fun or interactive. And so we're actually collecting a lot of feedback right now to help us guide where should we be focusing more of our effort on fun, gamified, meaningful aspects, and where should we be dialing things down a little bit. I think another challenge was, I think you phrased it this way at some point, Christine, or maybe it was you, Robert, but this, these aren't my words, but getting everyone to speak the same language because mm. we're working with such a varied team and people are coming with their own expertise that's so valuable to the project. But that means we have different goals and visions in mind. So just getting all on the same page. And you know, at this point, we've been working together long enough that I think that just kind of happened naturally. But that was one of the challenges early on. And then your reminder speaking of learning from, you know, other projects and past experiences, a reminder to keep the learning objectives in mind from the beginning, because if you don't have them there from the start, it's really hard to add them back in afterwards. So the first experience that we tested with students was our second act. We've kind of just within the team call things act one, two, and three. So act two is flying into the eye of a hurricane and collecting data. And so in the the second act, the questions are a little bit simpler because we weren't sure how students were going to react to it. And what we found when we got feedback, we had one very honest student in the first round of feedback who was like, look, if I just wanted an easy A, yeah, this is great. But if I want to challenge my thinking and learn more from the experience, maybe one of these questions did that, but most of them were too easy. There was only one student who admitted that and most were just like, yeah, this is great. But that was something we really took into consideration when we went on to develop Act 3, which is our emergency support rescue crew experience. And we started to include Bloom's taxonomy and the higher levels of thinking and critical thinking into the the questions that we built. Because to go back and rework a question after it's been built, I mean, the interface is there. And so mm-hmm. it, talk it about really... a lesson learned. I mean, <laughs> yeah. just to, to change a question involved graphic technological components, I mean, rewriting the script creatively, like before what happens before and what happens after, it, it's not easy to just go back and and change a question. So that was yeah. a big lesson. Yeah. And that the questions do to an extent drive the the narrative. So we actually then, by the end of this, we started the entire script writing process by writing the questions first. And also considering what questions drive drama and can can lead to a really exciting narrative. And not just the questions first, but we went back and we started putting the learning objectives at the top of every page or at the top of every script so that everyone, whether they were designing the the graphic element or the sound or the question that was asked, they had a reference point, which was the learning objective. And the entire experience is focused on these particular outcomes that we wanted the students to leave with. And in order for that to happen from top to bottom and completely within the design, everyone had to know what those were, be invested in what the learning objectives were aiming for, and just simply being reminded of them all of the time. So something as simple as just putting them in our documents for reference really helped guide that process. And for anyone listening, looking for a takeaway, I would just like you would put your goals on a sticky note on your bathroom mirror, put your learning objectives at the top of your project documents. And and that will really make a difference. Yeah, we also inside of our template had central tensions written out, critical plot points, taglines, bylines about what the experience was, just to remind us. And You know, I tell people it's the hardest part about pulling these experiences together. It's not the art. It's not the code. It's not even the narrative. It's actually alignment, finding alignment within your team because you've got all these different people working on something. How do you build that alignment so that you have a really polished product that comes together and actually fits together? So the simplest that you can boil things down and bring everybody onto the same page as simply as possible. That's what we've found to be very effective. Good point because it took everyone being in the same meetings or in the same room to really help make that happen. And I think that was one of the biggest lessons I've learned from working on other immersive projects is that 
it is critical that the subject matter expert, the project managers, the technological developers, and the instructional designers be present in the meetings. It's very hard to work through some of these components when one of those elements is missing. It unfortunately provides opportunities that you would have to potentially backtrack. And so that was something that we really set a goal as from the beginning was that everyone would be present as much as possible so that the design elements were not missing. There was something wrong with the subject matter or, as they mentioned before, a technological component couldn't be executed because the people in the creative meetings, you know, thought it could be. It was so important that everyone was present and invested in the same goals. And I know from my perspective, that's something that I will push going forward for more of these immersive types of experiences. Yeah, I was happy to see us manage that inside of our culture, actually. It seemed to it seemed to work well with our team. It is important, the subject matter expertise for something as serious as hurricanes, to do things with the right balance of reality. Obviously, it can't be completely photorealistic for the limitations of working within a game engine, but having real subject matter expertise on the project was really helpful. And luckily, we have Rachel Kay with us here, a two-time Emmy Award-winning meteorologist <laughs> on our team Thanks, Robert. as a project manager. And a real career meteorologist can tell what it's really like in the newsroom, really tell what it's like to be getting real data, and how the rescue teams also operate, because she reports on it. We do also, uh, just along the lines of you mentioned photorealism, within, I think in at least one point in each act, but using act two, our flight into the hurricane as an example, I was able to find real life video flying into the hurricane we base this experience on. So just to provide a nice visual, the students at a technical desk within a, a plane and you look out the plane window and you can see the storm. And one of the options that you can click to look at on your computer monitor is the live feed from the captain's perspective. And so if the student clicks that, they're going to see real life video on their virtual computer, what the view out of a real life plane flying into this hurricane is. And that video matches what they're seeing out the window, a virtual version of it. So that was a correlation I was very happy we were able to, to get to work in the end. Yeah, we do like blending the virtual and the physical. And I think that was one of the aspects that the students gave us a lot of positive feedback on and wanted to see more of, uh, if I remember correctly, on an early version. Yeah. Rachel, why don't you tell us a little bit about the storyline of the experience and, and the different acts and how they relate to the actual learning objectives that we were trying to reach? Yeah. So let me start with like the big picture description of the project because it is a three-act experience that takes students through three different careers. Each of those careers is also a different timeline in the hurricane development and forecasting process. So act one is two days before a hurricane makes landfall on the coast of Florida, and they're in the role of a broadcast meteorologist, which is my area of expertise. So I kind of helped to create the vision and the characters that would be involved in act one. And the student is what we ultimately landed on in the role of a weather producer. So they are helping Helping their chief get the graphics ready to tell the public two days before a storm hits what they can expect, how serious it's going to be, what they need to do to prepare to be safe. And while they're working with their chief to get the graphics ready, they get a phone call from grandma. <laughs> and grandma is just very confused and very resistant and doesn't want to evacuate. And, you know, really, that's just what they say. How bad is it really going to be? And so the student is in this role kind of in conflict between getting their job done and helping their family members both of which are very important. And also, to be honest, like very realistic as a meteorologist is like, oh, I have a, a weather hit is what we call them. I have a weather hit coming up in a minute, but my sister wants to know how bad this storm's going to be. So what do I do? <laughs> it took a few iterations to get the grammar right, but I think she's great. She's a it's character. also a good example of where the students were able to inject some of their personal creativity yes. to the storyline and and let them stretch their, their legs creatively. I have to give Mackenzie Lykman a shout out because the grandma was really her baby. Baby. She she made, she brought the grandma to life, and the grandma was her baby. <laughs> um, but she brought the grandma to life with a lot of character and 
I don't know if you guys have heard of the Waffle House Index, but it's unofficial, and so I don't teach it, and like farthest thing from my mind, but it is a way to say how bad a storm's going to be. If the Waffle Houses are closing down, you know it's a bad storm, and so Mackenzie brought the Waffle House Index in, which was such a great idea. The learning objectives for Act 1, not only are exposure to the different types of career roles in the field, but also what was the... Yeah, so the learning objectives, there are a few that are addressed in Act 1. First is to recognize weather information that's distributed from the National Hurricane Center. This is actually something I want my students to be able to do. Not everyone taking my class lives along the coast, but um, you should be able to, to take a quick look at that information that's available to the public and be able to interpret that. So we incorporate real National Hurricane Center data. One of the learning objectives is to understand the steps a meteorologist takes in a typical workday. So that particularly applies to Act 1. It's kind of incorporated throughout all of them, but Act 1 is the most, I would say, clear meteorologist role. And then describing sources of uncertainty a meteorologist faces. Look, I know there's going to be people who listen to this and say meteorologists are always wrong because we get that all the time. I disagree with that statement. That's a separate a separate discussion, but meteorologists are working with a lot of data and we're predicting the future. And that does come with uncertainties. And so that's also a, a quantitative science goal is to understand uncertainties in science. So we've really incorporated that into the course and intact one. So after they go through the broadcaster experience, what's act two? So in Act 2, this is really like once in a lifetime, you know, you can't do this in real life, I guess is maybe a better way to say it. You are on a plane flying into the eye of a hurricane. This is what hurricane hunters do. They're a part of the Air Force. So it is a real life career. I know people who have done it. It's not something most students would get to do as a part of a normal course, nor would they probably want to. (laughs) But this gives them the opportunity to do it safely. And so they're in the role of the drop sound officer. A drop sound is a tool you basically drop out of the bottom of a plane and it falls through the storm and collects a vertical profile of the atmosphere. So everything from humidity, temperature, wind speed is collected with this drop sound. And one of the learning objectives we're really touching on here is use of meteorological tools. And so they're releasing the drop sound while also looking out the window at the view of a a storm and then watching that data come in on what's called a sounding. And then they're reading that sounding and collecting that data. So Act 2 is really fun. And then they fly into the eye of the hurricane and you can see birds out the window that have got stuck in the eye. And we, we double checked that does really happen, which, you know, just little fun things like that that we've incorporated throughout the experience. They would never get to do something like that with a traditional resource or reading about it in a book or even watching a video about it. They actually have the opportunity to release the drops on, watch the data come in on the instrument and then read the instrument and then report it the way that a hurricane hunter would do in the field. You just would not be able to do that with traditional resources. And what happens in Act 3? We have a cutscene at the beginning that does show a view from a family's living room of the storm hitting. This is... Tell, wait, tell everyone what a cutscene is. Okay, so a cutscene is kind of like an intro passive video. It sets the mood, provides some context and background information, but the students aren't able to interact at this point. It is the only what I would call cutscene in the three-act experience because we wanted to show what the storm hitting was like. But the career path that we're following in Act 3 is emergency rescue support, which doesn't come in until after the storm has cleared. We did debate initially having this happen like live during the storm, and that just wasn't a realistic representation. So we decided to do this cutscene to show the storm hitting, and then the family needs to be rescued. And so the student has kind of a, a fun job They're going to be watching the view from a a safe desk, but a drone. They're kind of piloting a drone that's trying to get to the family's house to get an aerial survey of things before rescue crews arrive. Meanwhile, the student is on the phone with the family, helping to give them safety tips, things to do or not do, which is, as we've talked about, safety tips and making decisions throughout this process is a big part of the learning objectives. And also observing the real life aftermath of the storm from alligators in the water to down power lines. There's a lot in Act 3. Yes, it's Act 3 is our grand finale. And so it's visually the most elaborate. It's the only one that really takes you on a visual journey. It's not just sitting in one spot looking around, which we've done things to make that still 
hopefully interesting in Acts 1 and 2, but this really takes you down a coast that has been flooded and into the neighborhood and seeing things that you may not necessarily think about, which is kind of what you just touched on, the power lines down. You can get electrocuted going into floodwaters. People don't think about that. There can be wildlife, sewage, bacteria. Floodwaters are are a big no-no, so this helps to drive that. Well, we're getting near the end of the podcast, so if other instructors hear about this wonderful project and are interested in starting their own. Number one, kind of lay out what the process might look like, an abbreviated version, and what your recommendations are and maybe how they could reach out to resources here at ASU or Robert's office in order to make a project happen for their courses. Well, this is why I'm so happy that Rachel has joined us as a PhD student, because this is what's going to become her dissertation, is how do we make these projects come together efficiently so that many different instructors can come to us with their needs. We can spin up the student teams. They're ready to go. They're ready to build and, 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 and push things forward. So what that process might look like, I mean, Rachel will probably toss, but it's going to involve having instructional designers have conversations around the learning objectives, figure out what are the central tensions of the plots that we want to be creating around that, the environments, the situations, creating a set of what we call asset lists of things that need to be made to pull them together, and then basically producing. And we're hoping to keep it efficient down to like three-month turnaround time for some short, you know, five-minute, seven-minute acts and cost them appropriately in such a way that different units would be able to budget for this as well. And just build up teams of students that will be ready to produce this as a production studio at scale. A blend of junior and senior artists, developers, designers, storytellers, project managers that are all able to learn from each other and build these together. I want to follow that up with another question for you, Robert. If this ends up being a very popular idea and tons of instructors are coming to you with requests, what makes something stand out to you as worthwhile? Because we've been we've been talking recently about, you know, budget and there has to be funding for these things. So if you are working with a limited amount of funding and you can't take on every project, what makes something stand out as a good fit? Well, first thing is, I'll turn them over to you, and you'll help (laughs) us make that decision. But certainly, I I would hope that the units themselves, the academic units, would bring in some funding themselves to, to have this spun up. We may also have some funding, discretionary funding as well, or we could find some external sponsors or philanthropists that could support this effort too. We're always looking for that. But then it's it's not just about the money. It's, it is about our time and our teaming and deciding which stories are really compelling to, to tell. And I think it comes down to what can VR really help with or what can these gamified desktop experiences really help with? What are those narrative experiences where immersivity actually helps the students learn and embody their future selves, as, as it were? That's going to be a big part. Just to build on top of that, I think that's where the instructional design perspective starts is when you are designing a course and you're coming across an element that's missing. And that's exactly what happened in GPH 212 was that traditional resources and materials just were not meeting the learning objectives. And because we had a very targeted gap, it was easier to say, okay, this is what we need. This is what it might look like. This is, you know, the story that we want to tell. And everything fell into place because we had an identified gap that traditional materials weren't meeting. And so I would say to instructors or IDs that are listening, that's a great place to start because, yeah, it would be great to have an immersive experience in every course. That's the way of the future. And hopefully this will be ASU's first fully virtual reality course. That's my long game goal. (laughs) I don't know about Robert's, but that's mine. But to really narrow it down and having a very targeted gap that you want to fill with an immersive experience, I would say is the first step because everything will fall into place because of that. Is that too much? Is that too big of a goal? Can this be ASU's first virtual reality course? If we're fast enough. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, by the time I finish my PhD, I don't know. (laughs) That's my goal. I'm planting that seed. This conversation has been great. Thank you so much for joining us today to share your experiences and information about this project. If our listeners want to learn more about you or the projects that you're working on or how they could contact you, how would they reach out? Well, Christine, thanks for having us, first of all. And thanks for joining us on this adventure together and building this experience together. If people want to search Meteor Studio, 
ASU Meteor Studio, they'll find all of our contact information. They'll find all of our ongoing projects. We've got a lot of different learning and training experiences that we're developing. So they can find out about us through searching exactly that. And Meteor spelled? M-E-T-E-O-R, the thing that falls from the sky. I was going to say, and I have to draw one last little attention here to the overlap between Meteor Studio and Meteorology. Exactly. Another part of the perfect storm. Yes. Apparently. (laughs) Rachel, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Slack's great. Rachel K. It's R-A-C-H-A-E-L. So I do spell it differently. Or it's Rachel.K-A-Y-E. Last name. Rachel.K at ASU.edu. Any projects that you want to share? Anything exciting coming up for either of you? Well, we're developing this one out and we're really trying to study it and understand what is the impact that we can do, create here and how do we replicate that at scale? That's that's the big project, I think, that Rachel and I are really focused on. Yeah, hoping to turn this into a, a paper I'll be s- submitting to iLearn, which is a conference that'll be in Scotland next summer. It was so cool getting to talk to these three amazing people and to hear all about this like just really cool thing that they're doing, Mm -hmm. how they are bringing uh, a really kind of foreign concept, a thing Mm -hmm. that you can't get that you can't do, bringing it to students. And it's an introduction class, which is like kind of cooler. Like you don't have to be super advanced in this uh, program, this field to get to take this class. Mm -hmm. So I I almost looked it up to see like, can I take this class right now? Do I meet the prerequisites? With with some practical experience too, because there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, didactic information in the, in the, in the experience, you know, make sure that your gas is off if you're if you're experiencing this yeah real life scenario my favorite part is learning how to read uh hurricane meteorological meteor oh my god i can't say meteorological data data Data. <laughs> just data um, and being that's a real skill that not a lot of people have that you can use today mm-hmm. right now uh, maybe not in arizona because we don't get Have weather, weather. <laughs> <laughs> but if i was That's anywhere else here. <laughs> some that might be the virtual experience for some people is like to be out in the arizona sun and not have to actually be there like you can fly a plane into a hurricane in this experience you can just you know just see what it would look like uh with you know to crack an egg on the sidewalk right. one cook, time, a cookie on your hood one time <laughs> i saw a hurricane pass by when i was in new orleans and that was pretty cool it's the closest i've ever gotten to a hurricane now, before we leave how can people reach out to us? Course stories at asu.edu. Email us, hit us up on Slack. You can reach out to Elizabeth Blythe. Yes. You could reach out to Ricardo Leone or me, Mary Loader, and we'd be happy to talk about the future of your course being hosted and elevated on Course Stories. Course Stories is available wherever you listen to podcasts. You can reach us at coursestories at asu.edu. Course Stories is produced by the Instructional Design and New Media team at EdPlus at Arizona State University. If you're an instructor at ASU Online, tell us your course story and we may feature it in a future episode. Thanks for listening. It's just like, do you want me to start with how? <laughs> I'm just a font of just interesting information. Yeah, I can't, I can't be repeated, but I will re-say... We're in Realm 5, but we're learning about the realms. I was like, oh my gosh, this is the MC universe where I've got to understand how Captain Marvel is going to interact with Realm 5 and how he gets from Realm 1 to Realm 5 through the use of the Infinity Stones. Uh, that's that's the ASU realms. I mean, kind of. If you want to know more about the ASU realms, we do have a website. We'll put it in the teaching, not the teaching, the show notes. This is um, going on as a tag at the perfect. end. Oh, post-credits scenes. Post-credits. <laughs> oh my gosh, we are the MC universe. <laughs>